feels very quiet in here. That may seem like an obvious thing to you. But I'm struck I haven't been in the hall since this morning. <clears throat> and as I come to sit, I'm struck by the quality of the quiet here. It's not, to me right now, just the absence of sound. I don't know if anyone else has this perception, but it's as if our collective gathering of attention has has its own palpable, tangible presence in the quiet, as if as if it has its own um, density and atmosphere. And I'm enjoying that. And I invite us tonight to um, let your hearts rest. A lot of you have been working really hard. Does anybody feel like they've worked hard? <laughs> I'm, is the chuckling like yes? <laughs> even if even if you haven't got the results, you know, n- normal sort of equation maths results to show for it, there's some sense of having worked hard. <clears throat> Let me know if this starts to rumble the mic on my shirt. Just noticed it did. I would like to reflect tonight and the theme that I have is entitled A Merciful Attention. Attention that is full of mercy. And when I was sitting back at my house down at Gaston Pond, my house, I think I hear my mum in the background, who, who died and left it to you? <laughs> it's not my house. This house I have been granted to stay in for a short time, which would be a good way of looking at all our possessions, right? <laughs> As I was sitting down there reflecting and thinking, what, what might serve my fellow Dharma wayfarers tonight? And I just didn't know. And then the mind comes, but you know, you're the teacher. You have to produce something them and I'm hearing my mind and hopefully you have enough mindfulness now that you can start to hear and see your own mind and it's a convincing thought isn't it like you're the teacher you're supposed to come up with the talk it's quite accurate (laughs) it's not my most deluded thought that I've ever had (laughs) it's one of the more sort of accurate helpful ones like, oh yeah, I'm the teacher. I have a talk to offer tonight. What is it going to be? And I sat for many hours. Come on. You have a talk to offer to these Dharma wayfarers tonight. They've been here four days, you know. They need something to help them along the way. 
and the thought kind of just dissolved. Some little ripples of fear. Mm -hmm. What will it be? And I reflected on a number of Dharma themes. All of them beautiful. There's so much to this Dharma, as many of you know. And none of them were landing well in my heart. And then this word mercy came. And my heart lined up. Mercy. I need mercy. Most of us could probably use some mercy. What would it be like to meet ourselves and come to the cushion here with a merciful attention? One that isn't requiring you to become someone. Is this, is this rumbling for you or is it just me? a merciful attention that didn't require that in your practice you have to produce results. A merciful attention that doesn't demand that you be someone other or become better or more fixed or more purified or more wise or good enough or perfect. Because what I notice, for many of us who come to practice sincerely with a really sincere endeavor, and we come to the cushion and we really try to apply ourselves, and we, we learn about attention and I really try to apply that attention and follow the instructions. And I work hard and I try hard, and I effort well. But if there's no mercy, if there's no heart imbued with forgiveness, with compassion, with peace, then our efforts can be more of the same type of binding. Our efforts in meditation can bind us more in the name of trying to be free. I apply myself so hard. I get cramped. I get dry. I get joyless. Because I think I'm going in the direction of what the Buddha said. Didn't he say, be diligent, zealous, work hard? Yes. But let's consider mercy. Sometimes that sense of really working hard in our practice, it can have a really beautiful Um, upright, diligent, bright zeal that really wants to deepen and unbind suffering. 
And for many of us, that zeal is interwoven with a sense that I have to work hard to, because there's something wrong with me, because there's something that's not okay, so I have to become someone else. I remember when I was first hearing about teachings, and it was in a different lineage, and the word that's also used in this lineage, um, purification was a popular word, that path is for purification. And you can do purification practices. And I thought, great, that's what I need, purifying. So I had this kind of image of purification, great. And the zeal arises, yeah, that's what I want. So something beautiful arises there. But it took many years to see that some of that was premised on a view that there was something impure here, something not okay, something faulty, something wrong, not good enough. So tonight I really want to consider if you're someone that recognizes that at all, at all in any moments of your mind, your mind might tell you that, those things, not good enough, bad, wrong, something wrong, oh God, better fix it, got to fix myself. Or for some of us, we don't hear that, but we're working so hard, pushing ourselves so hard that we might do well to listen deeper into the heart. And what would it be to practice? What would it be as a first moment, the, the, the view that brings you to the cushion is that the view that you think there's something wrong with you is complete delusion. One of my teachers used to say, anything your mind tells you about who you are is Mara. And Mara in the tradition is the personification of delusion. I was like that, now I'm like this, and I'm going to be like that. I shouldn't have been like that, I wish I hadn't been like that, and now I'm trying to not be like that, and later I'm going to be like this. Oh, it was really good like that, I was like that, I wish I could be like that, and I don't want to be like this. Anything your mind tells you about who you are, as a definition, is Mara. It doesn't mean we can't inhabit fully certain beautiful aspects of who we are. Of course we can. But to take them as primary, to take them as truth, we will be forever spinning. The same teacher Ajahn Sachito, who's a beautiful monk of many, many years' practice, he likes to discriminate between what he calls personhood and selfhood. And he said personhood can become beautiful. The chitta, the whole heart-mind can be cultivated and become beautiful. Selfhood 
Selfhood are those senses of self that are conditioned, that cramp, that freeze, that harden and puff out, that are rigid in some way, that are predictable in some way. You know, those kinds of senses of self. Someone says something a certain way or looks at you a certain way and there's a very predictable kind of self-sense that arises. Either, oh my God, they don't like me, I'm not lovable, or how dare they look at me like that, or I'm going to get them, etc., etc. Very predictable tracks that the heart-mind takes that are pretty rigid by the time we're, you know, somewhere into early adulthood. They're pretty predictable for most of us, the kind of shapes that we take. Selfhood, in selfhood, as he points out, there's no room for the miraculous. There's no room to be surprised. There's no room within that structure for discriminating insight that unbinds suffering. The Vedana that Yen I was speaking about this morning, to be able to tune our attention, to know when something is unpleasant and know it as that, to know when something is pleasant and to know it as pleasant, to know when something is neither pleasant nor unpleasant and know it as such. This is both a profound uh, lens we can train, a profound muscle of our attention that we can train that can help us out in the most tangled, cramped, awful sense of suffering that we can encounter right through to the most subtle, subtle perceptions in our meditation where we can learn to unbind more and more and more. So imagine, if you will, a vertical line. I'm drawing it with my hands in front of you right now. And at the top of that line is the most difficult suffering that you have known. Where the sense of self is really fraught. Where the sense of other is really prominent. And the sense of the world between you is very, very um, terrible, right? I can imagine everyone could think of such an example from their life. Our practice can meet us there. And as we learn to unbind, as we learn to soften and widen, as we learn to breathe in and out with the body, as we learn to see the Vedana, as we learn to stop and feel our feet on the ground, and as we learn to inquire and investigate into this structure, it can start to loosen. People in the groups were talking about things today, difficult things they were encountering, but they were saying, oh, I'm seeing 
that I'm just in my head right now, for example. Oh, God, I'm, I'm lost. I'm just in my head. And I pointed out, but you can see that you're just in your head, right? The mindfulness lets you know you're in your head. Most of us, when we're in our head, we don't know we're just in our head, right? The mindfulness starts to reveal what's happening. Imagine on this line, this softening and unbinding of this sense of self and other. And things start to loosen and open up for us. Right? We start to be able to see the trees a little bit more. We're not so enclosed in that whole story. The light on the glassy eye strikes us because we're not so encapsulated in our own mind-made world. And imagine more and more loosening right through to the sense where the love really starts to open up widely, deeply, not just for those we love, but really starts to widen in all directions. Right through in the Dharma teachings and meditation, right through to the complete unbinding of any perception or feeling. This whole spectrum can be known. And at different times, we find ourselves on different places. And it's not like we start up here and we suddenly, you know, great, by by the 6th of January, I'm going to be down there. No, we work and we learn at different times to attend to different things on that spectrum. And it's not linear. And I wonder if I give some examples of this. If you could consider this from the perspective also of a merciful attention. Because sometimes we can hear about attention and Vedana. And it could sound very clinical it could sound like, oh, I could just apply this thing from my mind and everything will be all right. One of the things we see as we practice is that concentration, this samatha, this capacity to abide, we can start off thinking, well, concentration is something you do with your mind, right? You apply it to something. And as we learn to abide more, we can start to see that concentration is something that happens with the body. And the mind can come to pick it up. The mind can start to rest with that abiding, can fill out, can breathe out, can firm up, can stabilize. Because this breathing living body has been um, attended to with a merciful and bright attention. So one example, and see if you recognize any of these kinds of things, One of the things that happens on a retreat is that these self-senses come into stark relief. It's like the lights go on 
and we see them really, really clearly. And that is both very painful at times, but also very good news, because we can work with it. So I'm remembering one time on retreat at the sister center to here in England called Gaia House. And I had a yogi job to do the tea wash up. And there wasn't a big retreat on at the time. So I was on my own doing it. There weren't a lot of retreatants there at the time. And so I would collect the food from the dining room and take it into the kitchen, pack it all into the food boxes and go to do the washing up. And I noticed that the cupboards, wooden painted cupboards in the kitchen, had sort of, the compost bin was right beside them, so people had emptied the sort of tea bags and things there, and it had splashed against the nice white paint on the cupboard. And there was these kind of stains, these tea stains on the cupboard. And I thought, hmm, it's not very nice, not very pretty, they should take better care of this place, blah, blah, blah on with my job, feeling a little bit righteous. Now, I didn't see that I was inhabiting a righteous sense of self. I just thought I was right, right? You know the difference? And sometimes we have to consider, do I prefer freedom or do I prefer to be right, right? So, but I didn't see that, it, that I was righteous. I was just right at the time. And then that's when we don't see. There's no mindfulness. There's no spiritual faculties, as Shada was speaking about yet. So there I was, next day, come in and do my job, looking at the tea stain. Almost by then, my eyes have trained themselves to look at the tea stain. Do you know that, how the mind starts to pick up the thing that's going to irritate it? Um, or all the thing it's going to have to desire. It's like, red, it's still there. Stain's still there. They haven't done anything about it yet. More righteous. But um, it's all in my head. I can't tell anyone. That's both the beauty and terror of being on retreat. I can't discharge it by moaning. I'm not supposed to write a note um, about it. I could give feedback in two weeks' time, but it does sound a bit petty. Would you please paint the cupboard in the kitchen? So I'm just, I'm just spinning in my own mind, but I don't know I'm spinning in my own mind because I'm just, right. Next day I come in, right, okay, I think, because I was actually on the board of Guy House at the time, like on the trust, this really isn't good enough. You know, somebody should have brought this to the board and it should have been sorted out by now. Okay, but I'm on the board. Okay, I'm going to write a letter to the board and tell us we have to sort the cupboards out. Okay, so there I am busy in my head writing the letter. Sound familiar to anybody? And then by a week, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm almost dreading going into the t- kitchen because my <laughs> eyes are going to go straight for that spot on the cupboard that's going to wind me up where I'm going to be right again, but at least I know who I am because I'm right. And it's horrible by then, isn't it? It starts off, you know, righteousness can feel a little good in the beginning, but after a week stuck in your own head with it, it's hell. Another week I was on a long retreat <clears throat> for better and for worse. The next week... I'm still doing the same job, dreading going into the kitchen. And then, as a little bit of mindfulness starts to come in. Hold on, my love. You're doing meditation practice. Can you feel your feet? Yeah, but they should really do so. Can you feel your feet? Yeah, but it's not really... It looks terrible. What will people think? Yeah, can you breathe out? Yes, I can breathe out. Yeah, but... Yeah, okay, we can deal with that in a minute. What's happening right now? What's happening right now? And as the mindfulness starts to strengthen, one can start to see that whole self-construct 
in its spun, woven, binded self. And I could hear the mind. I wasn't in the mind. Yeah, but somebody should really do about it because it looks terrible. And, and then I could start to hear the moaning in the mind. Because really people should take care of things. And, and I'm hearing it. And there's a merciful attention starts to envelop and hear. These two statues in the walking room, I believe there's two, and this one at the back of Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, she, he, and they, appearing in all of those genders, actually, in different places. She is the one who hears the cries of the world. She is not abstracted. She is not someone other than your own awakened heart. She is who comes more into um, being as we do our practice. And as I'm listening to that moaning, not judging it, but hearing and sensing and feeling the pain in my heart, no one cares. No, No one cares about me. Ah, is the one who believes that no one cares about her. And hearing that, there was quiet. Sometimes when we're working at the top of that spectrum, We, we need a merciful attention. Hearing without becoming that cry. She felt heard. She could rest. She dissolved. not seeing that those woven, tight-bound structures of the righteousness were resting on some hurt. And as Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, as she hears the cry, she's also done a lot of meditation practice, she can also sense, ah, yeah, she can see This is unpleasant. She's not adding to that. She's not grasping the unpleasant and then becoming the thing that's trying to solve the issue. Right? Can we meet those senses when we're in our most bound sense? with our feet on the ground and a merciful attention. Mercy, that combination of compassion that can hear the cry. And she's not hearing only with her ears. Her whole abiding is a hearing. 
she, he, they are an instrument of compassion in that moment. Other times in our practice, we're not so spun at the top of that spectrum. It's looser. Things are okay. There's more room. I'm not giving myself a hard time. There's more space. There's more awareness. There's more ground. I'm loving seeing what unfolds as I come to the cushion and it becomes more subtle. The heart-mind gets more quiet, fills out the body. There's a, a subtle attention to breathing in and breathing out. It gets quiet, and it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's quite neutral. As Yen, I said this morning, it's not doing something to me, And it's not doing something for me. And these are really, really, really important places in our practice. This teacher I'm speaking about, who I love so much, he speaks about compulsive self-activation. And when I saw the title of his talk, I thought, well, that sounds like a bit of an insult. Um, I'm allowed to activate myself if I want. You know, don't call it compulsive. But he's right. Right? So the compulsive activation of selfhood, which is different than our personhood, that's different than our nobility and our, um, the beauty that can develop here. But in those moments, sometimes in the quiet, you might notice nothing much going on. And then a little thought kind of, just a tiny, almost like a little baby firework before it's even flown into the sky, just kind of offers us something, saying, yeah, but you really shouldn't have done that thing in the yogi job earlier. But there's enough quietness. There's enough trust. There's enough leaning into what is initially neutral. There's enough taste for that. There's enough taste for what doesn't shout so loud. We get to tolerate more what is not confirming me or denying me. We start to love that. And that thought does not attract us. It is not binding us. We are not offering our attention there. We're not compelled to offer our attention to everything consciousness presents. Thank God. So really trust those moments and build the tolerance, we could say, for not being compelled to pick up the self-sense that is presenting itself in consciousness. It's not denying, it's not spiritual bypassing, it's not... um, It's not that there's no issues to work with, but we're training a very particular thing here. 
which is, to, which is in freedom. And the definition of freedom is to not be compelled. Right? Freedom isn't going to be just that everything's lovely all the time. No, there will be pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whether you're a Buddha or not a Buddha. Freedom is being compelled to start to weave these senses of selfhood that cramp and limit the the beauty and dignity and goodness of what you are. So in praise of what is neutral, can you linger longer? Stay all the way to the end of the outbreath. Right to where it gets really, really quiet. Feel the flickering sometimes of the agitation of, yeah, but, but what, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And isn't seeing that flicker in consciousness and breathing out. Letting the silence draw you deeper. So wherever we find ourselves, in the most tangled bind, in the most open love, in the most subtle discrimination, what would it be to bring mercy? Because mercy is includes the forgiveness, the compassion, and has a kind of quality of peacefulness. Curious what the word mercy does when you hear it. Or what, and, and think about whatever is the nearest equivalent in whatever other languages you know whatever other languages are close to your heart. It's a really beautiful word in English, I think. Interestingly enough, I can sense right now that little flicker in the heart of, come on, you're supposed to keep giving this talk, right? You know, you you could stop in a minute, but you're supposed to say at least a little bit more, right? And it's not that that's not appropriate, 
But what we want to see in practice is where those flickers, the flickers, the agitation, compels us. Okay. Compels us into activity. Compels me right now into the activity of, okay, I could say that thing about what's it, and, you know. Or compels us when we're on our own into that self-activation. I could just think about that thing, nothing much happening. I think I'm going to go for, ah, yeah. Let me think about that. Let me think about that time in the guy house kitchen that was really terrible, right? You know, it's really interesting. There's no blame there whatsoever, but sometimes we will, you know, sort of select something from the back shelves to fill up consciousness there. Sounds like you know what I'm talking about. You know, sometimes it feels random, but as we, uh, uh, you know, but as we go further and get more subtle, sometimes we can actually see, actually, there is some, it's not random. There's no one to blame there. It's not like we're wrong for doing that. It's just that's what's conditioned, right? We're conditioned to try and find a little definition for ourselves. Oh, yeah, that was really terrible. It was really good I wrote that letter. It's really good. They finally painted them three years later, and it looked so nice when they did. You know, I'm, I'm in some, some little story of who I am and where I belong, and it's fine. It's not terrible. But if we want to know something more than that, we're asked to relinquish that when we see that we have an option. Sometimes we don't. It's taken hold of us before there's any mindfulness. Fine, we work there, absolutely, at that level. But sometimes... We can see it's like it's presenting itself to us. We're not obliged to pick it up. And that's not just when you're really, you know, you think you're really advanced and done loads of practice. This, is, this has been happening for people. If you had picked up every thought that consciousness presented to you and run with it, you wouldn't still be sitting here. Would you? <laughs> I mean, you'd have, I mean, maybe not everybody, but a good number may have had a fantasy of, right, I'm gone. Or I, I, I tell this story a number of times, a man who came to me in retreat, and he said, I was on retreat with you last year, and I must apologize. I said, oh, why? He said, because um, I was in a small group with you, and something you said really annoyed me, and I left the retreat. And he said, and I, he said, I didn't, he said, I got so incensed by something you said um, that he said, my next moment of mindfulness, so this is a year later he's telling me this, he said, my next moment of mindfulness, I was in my car and I was 30 miles down the road to Plymouth. (laughs) And he said, and he kind of woke up, there was a moment of mindfulness and he um, realized that there was no freedom. You know, freedom isn't just doing what we want. Freedom isn't being ridden by our patterning. Freedom is, is freedom. It's not being compelled. Now, it doesn't mean that our mind isn't compulsive. I think that's the nature of a conditioned mind. It's pretty compulsive. But with these spiritual faculties now, we can start to steady and hold the tiger as Ajahn Sachita also says, hold the tiger.
And as we hold the tiger, we can start to bring in our tools. Oh, wow, this is unpleasant if it's unpleasant. Unpleasant, unpleasant. Breathing out, widening, softening, hearing, sensing, bringing the merciful attention and the wisdom that's actually there's something I want more than being right, if the pattern is righteousness. There's something I want more. than spinning that self-sense again. I have found it really helpful in practice when I am not able to bring a merciful attention to invoke and invite an other in whose presence my defenses soften, an image of another. Another, I may not know them in real life, but an other in whose gaze, if they were to gaze upon me, there is trust. It might be a figure that's completely out of your imagination. It might be a teacher. It might be, as I was telling the group this morning, I spent hours on retreat here. I used to live here 20-something years ago. Hours on retreat, imagining I was doing my walking meditation with the Dalai Lama. I had him beside me. Settling kindly gazing, encouraging. When my mind would say, ah, walking, don't like walking. Do I have to do walking? No, you don't have to do walking, but what about just for one minute? Okay, I can do it for one minute. Right. It might sound really nuts, but, you know, we really, really want to draw on really wise resources. Hours walking up and down. Other times, bringing in a figure of love and allowing the image of them to arise with us, behind us, in front of us. It could be not even someone you think it would be. You know, I have a friend, um, I'm just wondering if I can tell his story without asking his permission. No, I can't. <laughs> I just realized if I would give examples, I would ask permission normally. But uh, let me think of something else. That a figure that's not necessarily, doesn't really chime with you sort of philosophically, let's say. You know, let's say you're a really ardent Buddhist, but actually there's something about the figure of Jesus out there that speaks to you, even though you're going, hold on a minute, I'm, uh, no. But something in the image strikes you, then allow that, right? Or you're really not into anything with images, but something about the Kuan Yin statue out there, the big one with the crack down the middle. Something in you is your senses are arrested and there's something about that image, even though part of you says, oh, but she's just wooden or whatever. Don't limit what's possible. What would it be to allow that figure 
in whose gaze you trust, in whose presence your defenses soften, in whose company your mind steadies. (coughs) To gaze upon you with a merciful attention. Not demanding that you get better and be someone better and be someone else because they can see not only your suffering but they see right through that to the dignity, to the nobility, to your unfathomable depths. And all of you is welcome. If you at all suffer from the idea that something is wrong with you, faulty, not good enough, a mistake, what would it be when you're in that place to stand in front of Kuan Yin? in your own mind or out there. She who hears the cries of the world and pours her healing balsam. This is skillful means. If we want to look at it technically, if we want to look at it in clinical terms, then we try it out and see what is the effect The Dharma and wisdom is always, is my way of attending right now, does it lead onward? Is it helpful? Is it conducing to more wisdom and more compassion? And if it is, follow that. And as I was reflecting on this, I was remembering that image in the movie that's probably 25 years old, probably around the time that I lived here, actually, if you've, it's a very powerful, iconic image from the movie Goodwill Hunting. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't seen it, and there's a young man who's a famous actor. I can't even remember who he is. Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt Damon. And his therapist, who is Robin Williams, I think. Yeah. And this young man had really, really deep dukkha. Deep, deep dukkha. Many conditions that had given rise to that. (coughs) And the iconic moment, probably some of you know what I'm going to say, is when this young man, I can't even remember what was happening, but he's really in difficulty. And the therapist is really holding his gaze and really quite in a demanding way, actually. And it's as if the therapist's words come from deep knowledge right through to this young man and hold him with the conviction, it's not your fault. And he's squirming and trying to move away because any of us who have that shape, there's something familiar about it that we want to slot back into. No, 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 no. I know cognitively it's not my fault, but really it is. And he holds him there. It's not your fault. And he squirms and tries to move away. It's not your fault. And he's quite firm. Until the young man, until his heart breaks, I think. 
in a really, really helpful way. Until the liquid, the wateriness, the, until the nectar of his own heart can start to pour, firstly via tears, firstly via pain. That's how the heart cracks open. What would it be to practice to not try and be better, a better self? What would it be to trust? the merciful attention that comes out of the silence that is for you. Whether you find yourself at times at the top of that spectrum, in the middle, down the bottom where it's very subtle, word mercy in English is is a rich word. And there's a a song that maybe some of you know. I didn't know it until a few years ago. And some friends of mine play it when they sing down at one of the local pubs every Wednesday. And when they sing it, it goes right into my heart. And it's called Mercy Now. Does some of you know it? By Mary Gauthier. She's from North America. <laughs> somewhere. Sounds like it in the melody too, somehow. Um, so I'm, I was thinking of singing it, and I suggested it to Yanai, so he got the, found the words... For whoever or whatever parts of you could use some mercy. And one of the verses says, it says, my brother could use a little mercy now. And whether it's your brother or those parts of yourself or parts of your world or your country or your people, whoever it is that comes... For me, that verse with the brother, there's, I have many brothers, and one of them died this year. One of my brothers, uh, Michael, died this year, a few months ago. And he was one. We all, of course, have our own 
suffering and crosses to bear. But he was one very often here, really searching for something and really troubled. So I've never actually sung it. I, when I hear it at the pub, I don't join in, so this is a bit of a risk. <coughs> if you know it, you, you can um, join in, although the rhythm's always a bit, little bit different. But this is for whatever in us could use some mercy. So please listen with your body. Please listen with your heart, with your bright mind. It may or may not touch you as it touches me. And if it doesn't, that's really fine. And I hope mercy comes to you in other ways. My father and could use a little mercy now the fruits of his labor fall and rot slowly on the ground his work is almost over it won't be long and he won't be around i love my father but he could use some mercy now. My brother could use a little mercy now. He's a stranger to freedom. He's shackled to his fear and his doubt. The pain that he lives in, it's almost more than living will allow. I love my brother, but he could use some mercy now. My church and my country could use a little mercy now. As they sink into a poison pit, it's going to take forever to climb out. They carry the weight of the faithful who follow them down. I love my country, but we could use some mercy now. Every living thing could use a little mercy now. Only the hand of grace can end the race towards another mushroom cloud. People in power, they'll do anything to keep their crown. I love life and life itself, and life itself could use some mercy now. 
We could all use a little mercy now. I know we don't deserve it, but we need it anyhow. We hang in the balance, dangle tween hell and hallowed ground. And every single one of us could use some mercy now. And every single one of us could use some mercy now. Time is 8.30. Let's take some time for walking, either on your own or whoever you want to walk with, um, with a steady, kind attention. And we'll meet back at 10.00.